right, so we are getting into Galatians chapter 5 tonight. I think this is maybe 24, 25 messages into the book of Galatians at this point. So uh, Lord willing, at this point, you actually know where it's at in your Bibles if you did not know it before we started this series. So many of you know I grew up in Savannah, but uh, what you might not know is I grew up with parents who absolutely loved the beach. As a kid who liked the beach, that actually worked out really well in my favor. So anytime we went to the beach, we would always get the same speech by our parents. Just before we ran out into the water and got out there and started splashing waves, my parents would say the same thing every single time. They would say, don't go out too far, stay right in front of us so that we can see you, and be careful about the undertoes because the current is strong. How many parents have given that speech before? All right, so anyway, apparently we had very similar parents. And you all know, as kids, you go out, you run into the water, and you start splashing and playing, and you're jumping, and you're having fun, and you look up, and like three minutes later, your parents are like 15 yards down the beach. And you stop what you're doing, and you go back, and you realign, and then you start having fun again, and you're jumping in the waves, and you're enjoying the surf, and 10 minutes later, you're 40 yards down the beach, and by this point, your parents are flagging you down, and you kind of move back over there. And that happens constantly when you're out at the ocean. And I can honestly tell you, on my side at least, there was never any intention of trying to move away from my parents. It was an issue of the fact that the movement occurred because currents are strong. Every time that we would jump in the waves, every time we would go out a little bit too far in the water, it was like the water and the current would pick you up and it'd move you down just a little bit. And then you'd jump up in a wave and it'd move you down just a little bit. And then you could feel, many times, you could feel the current coming against your legs and almost pulling you down the side. There was this ongoing current pull that was happening whenever you were in the water. So the only way to avoid a dangerous situation was to heed warnings, to remain alert, to choose a steady point on the beach, and then continually realign yourself back with that point once again. And in our case, that point on the beach happened to be my parents. Now I want you to take that idea and I want you to bridge it into our study of the book of Galatians. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find that God tells his people to stand firm. I believe this is in your notes. Uh, we are to stand firm in our faith, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are to stand firm in the full armor of God, Ephesians chapter number 6. We are to stand firm in the unity of the gospel, according to Philippians chapter 1. We are to stand firm in the Lord, Philippians chapter 4. We are to stand firm in the teachings of the apostles, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then tonight we get into a section of stand firm in freedom, Galatians chapter 5. Now, standing firm, it simply means that you plant yourself in that place. You don't budge, you don't move. You anchor yourself to a certain position. Standing firm in Scripture means that you are going to place your full trust in God and your full trust in His Word. It's about fully embracing our position in Christ and also recognizing the fact that in the poles of life, back and forth, we are to stand firm in who we are in Christ and stand firm in what the Word of God says. Now, here's the warning. 
when you're enjoying life and just moving along and you're having fun, sometimes you can be oblivious to the gradual pull that is happening under the surface. The pulls of the flesh, the influences of others, the tugs of society, pieces under the surface begin to pull you off to the side. The only way to remain in a spiritually uh, proper position is to heed the warnings of God, to remain alert, to focus on the truths of God's word, and listen, and then constantly realign yourself back to those truths again. So two weeks ago when we were in our study of Galatians, I finished a section and I shared that the book of Galatians has three major sections. We just finished the last or the middle section a couple of weeks ago. And in that section, the gospel of grace was explained. That was in chapters three and four. Starting now, chapters five and six, it's going to be the gospel of grace that is applied. And as this new section begins, the apostle Paul gives a warning found in verse number one. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Over the course of the next several verses, from verse 1 down through verse number 12, he gives five costly consequences or five devastating results or five major issues that come when we fail to stand firm and we eventually begin to drift away from the freedom that is ours in Christ. Now, some of you might be like me, and that is you love grace. You love the Christ life. You love freedom, and you, you love what it looks like to walk in the joy of relationship with God. Maybe you're exactly like me, and you grew up in a context in which it was a lot of legalism that was there, and there was a lot of rules, and there was never an emphasis of grace, never an emphasis on relationship. And whenever you discovered the relational truths of grace found in the Word of God, once you found it, you're like, I can never go back to that. If that happens to be you, you might be looking at a text like this and say, don't worry, Paul, I've got this one. I've been living in grace a long time. I've been loving freedom for a long time. This one's not for me. All I can say is it's for all of us because if we are not continually realigning ourselves to the truths of grace, we will gradually drift into bondage. And many times we don't even recognize it when it's happening. So I invite you tonight, if you're not already there, turn with you in your Bibles, Galatians chapter number 5. This is going to be the first of two messages focused on the idea of the consequences of failing to stand firm. Now, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 tonight. I'm actually only going to focus on verses 1 through 3, but I want you to at least get the full section of Scripture for context, knowing where we're going to be going the next time we get into this section. So here's what it says, Galatians chapter number 5, verses 1 through 12. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Verse 4, 
You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. By the way, pause here for just a moment. This is a passage that is often taken out of context to justify a position of losing your salvation. That is not what he is saying in this text. We're going to get into that so that you can clearly see what the Word of God says. Once you have been redeemed, once you have been washed, once you have been saved, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So here's what it says from there. For through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. That's a strong word. We're going to have a word of prayer before we go further on that one. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are asking tonight that your word come alive God, we, we need your spirit to guide us into all truth. Apart from that happening, it's just words coming out of my mouth and it's falling on dead ears and hearts that have no desire to move forward. So, Lord, all of us, myself included, we need you to constantly help us realign to the truths of grace. We're thankful for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our last message that we were in in Galatians, I shared that The book can be broken down into three primary sections. Let me give you those three sections again. In chapters 1 and 2, the gospel of grace is defended. In chapters 3 and 4, the gospel of grace is explained. And then in chapters 5 and 6, the gospel of grace is applied. So we are now transitioning out of the explanation into the application side of this book. And it's in this particular section that those who struggled with justification by faith, those who have struggled with ideas of legalism, it's in this moment that they go from uncomfortable to irate when he gets into chapter 5. Many believers think the doctrines of grace are dangerous. Here's why. They think if you teach grace, believers will run headlong into sin. They think that if you teach grace and you begin to remove this focus of adherence to and acceptance by the law, they feel like if you don't focus on that, then believers will just do any and everything they desire and churches will fold and society will crumble and they they think it's going to be the beginning of this process of unraveling what it is that the gospel is about. All I can tell you is, if you can't preach grace and stay in the center of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. The Word of God clearly teaches what grace is about. 
This is a notion that misunderstands grace. The Apostle Paul wrote two chapters specifically in order to correct that misunderstanding. Instead of grace encouraging lawless behavior, it leads people into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. Isn't that exactly what we're hoping is going to occur with discipleship? If we just fill people's mind with Bible information that it doesn't transform their heart and it doesn't change their actions, we just made a Bible student. We didn't make a disciple of Jesus Christ. It should be that it is transforming us from the inside out. So the Christian who applies biblical grace, biblical grace, biblical grace, not our idea of grace, Not our concoction of grace, because you all know as well as I do. Sometimes in our society, even when somebody is speaking the truth in love, somebody can say, that's ungracious. It's not our idea of grace. It's God's idea of grace. So when a Christian applies a biblical understanding of grace, it will deepen their heart for God. They will willingly yield themselves to the Spirit of God. They will lovingly serve others, and they will humbly seek to glorify God. Those are the major ideas that the Apostle Paul is going to be bringing out in these last two chapters. Grace is not a license to sin. It is empowerment to fulfill our created purpose. Now, if you're talking dangerous, I can talk to you about dangerous. Legalism is dangerous. Why would I say legalism is dangerous? Because a legalist is somebody who lives in bondage to the law while dependent upon the flesh to make them acceptable to God in the hopes that their goodness today overshadows their failures of yesterday. That is a recipe for exhaustion, discontentment, as well as frustration. So what are the consequences of failing to stand firm and the freedoms that we have in Christ. Here's the first one that's in your notes. Failing to stand firm in freedom places us back under the yoke of slavery. We go from free to bondage. Verse number one, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, according to verse number one, Christ set us free so that we could be free. That's deep theology right there, isn't it? Like sometimes we want to make things more complicated than they are. Well, what does it mean that he set us free? It meant that he set us free. That's what it means. He set us free. He didn't come to bind us up. He came to set us free. We were born into bondage under law. We are born again into freedom under grace. By falling back into the patterns of the old life, by failing to stand firm in that freedom, we are subjecting ourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Now, in the previous chapters, the Apostle Paul has already used two different comparisons to describe what the law was. He said it was like a schoolmaster or a guardian. Chapter 3, verse 24, and chapter 4, verse 2. That was one comparison. And then he also said, the law is like a bondwoman, according to Galatians 4.22. Now, he compares it to a yoke of slavery. Now, the key word here is yoke. I understand that in our culture, the word yoke is not exactly a term that we use very often. 
but let's try our best to be able to understand kind of exactly what this means. Now, one of the things that I absolutely love about being in southwest Georgia is I love looking out and seeing some farming happening everywhere. I love farms. I love things growing. I love trees. I love greenery. It makes me happy. So you look around, and there are farms everywhere. There's, there's cotton, and there's uh, pecans. That's pecans. You saw how I did that. Pecans, that's pecans when you're down here. And, and there's peanuts, and there's all sorts of things that are growing out there. And, and it's wonderful. I, I love the farming, the agriculture that takes place. But most of the farms of any size are a little bit more industrial in nature. That is, they use tractors and combines and pivot irrigation systems. And, and they use aircraft to come through and, like, spray their crops. By the way, I had my first like crop dusting experience in my backyard like two weeks ago. And I'm sitting in my study and I hear, vroom, vroom. and it just kept going back and forth. And in my mind, here's, you could tell I grew up like in the 80s and, and 90s. In my mind, I'm thinking Red Dawn. I'm thinking we're being invaded right now. Something's go There's not supposed to be planes this close to my house. So I actually went out in the backyard. I took a video of this plane just going back and forth. That's a whole other story. But anyway, so my point is there's a lot of industrialization that's taking place around farming. So when we think of a yoke, that's not common terminology, even if you're in a region that has a lot of farming and agriculture. So just so everybody's on the same page, a yoke was a wooden harness that was used by farmers to control oxen. Listen to this because they would not willingly serve if they were free. Think about that for a moment. If you just let them do their own thing, they're not going to willingly walk over and plow your fields for you. So it was a wooden harness put across the neck, across the back, in order to control them to get them to do what they would not willingly do if they were free. So the Apostle Paul compares the law to a yoke. He's saying the law represents slavery, service, someone else controlling your life, getting you to do what you would not normally do on your own. It's the same comparison of a yoke that is mentioned over in Leviticus 26, 13, when it speaks of God bringing his people out of Egyptian slavery. It says he broke the yoke of Egyptian slavery. Now, in this context, Paul is saying that the law controlled people to do what they would be unwilling to do if they were free. But listen, Christ not only breaks the yoke of sin, but he also frees the person to do what they were unable to do and unwilling to do in their unredeemed state. If you'll remember what Jesus says over in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, he describes his yoke. In fact, in that section of Scripture, it talks about the fact he takes off a yoke of slavery and he puts on the yoke of Christ. Those who are under that yoke of slavery and sin, it describes them as being weary and heavy laden. But then he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to that. This is so beautiful. I love how the Word of God portrays this. The unsaved person wears a yoke of sin. Lamentations 1.14. The legalist wears a yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1. The grace-based believer wears the yoke of Christ. Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. 
Here's the thing. There's always a yoke. There's always control. The question is, what or whom is controlling you? Who are you being controlled by? So when Christ freed us from the yoke of the law, it does not mean that we are free to act like rebels towards righteousness. It it means that we are no longer needing an external force like the law controlling our behavior, getting us to do what we would not do otherwise. At salvation, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit sets up residence within the life of the believer, Romans 8, 1 through 4. By way of who he is and where he is and what he does, he teaches his followers what is true and he convicts us of what is wrong and he empowers us to live out righteousness. Freedom, oh, this is so huge. This this is a statement you want to write it down, you want to teach it to your kids. Teach it to your grandkids. Here it is. Freedom is not the ability to do anything you want. Freedom is the ability to do what is right. Okay, let me show you how that is so important. Sometimes in the context of sin, somebody will say, I don't want anybody telling me what I need to do. It's my life. It's my decision. It's my choices. I'm I'm free to do whatever I want. I have worked with enough people who are suffering from addiction and suffering under bondage of sin and suffering under decades of bad decisions to tell you. When you ask that same person, can you walk away from the thing you say you are free to enjoy? No, that's not freedom. Freedom is the ability to do what's right. Freedom is the ability to live righteously. Freedom is the opportunity that we have to allow Christ and the Holy Spirit to move in and through our lives. That's exactly what we get with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. As 2 Corinthians 3.17 tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty that comes with that. Now, sadly, so many Christians are scared of being controlled by the Spirit of God. I don't know whether or not they think that if the Spirit of God controls them that they're going to do strange things, that they're they're going to all of a sudden become charismatics overnight. Or I, I don't know what people are worried about sometimes. This might sound bad, but I think sometimes people are wondering if the Spirit living in them is strong enough to control their behavior. So for many people... They're scared of Christian liberty. They're scared of this idea of the Spirit of God inside convicting and moving and transforming and leading. They're scared of having to listen to those nudges of the Spirit of God. And what they'll say is, I just wish God would just write down what he wants me to do and then I would do it. Guess what? That's what he did. And we couldn't do it. The only one who has ever been able to live up to the law and the standard of Scripture is Jesus Christ himself. No one has ever been justified by the law. But in our minds, we're like, if if you just tell me what to do, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. You can't. That's why Christ came. 
It's because he alone can do in and through you what you could never do for yourself. You could not save yourself. You are completely at the mercy of Almighty God. Nothing that we brought to the table would redeem us completely at his mercy, completely at his grace. We could not save ourselves, and we cannot sanctify ourselves. The same spirit, according to Philippians, who began a good work in you will complete. Thank you for 10 of you all that knew what Philippians was saying. The Spirit will complete it. Do you understand how offensive that can be for us to say, yes, I'm going to place faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I don't think he can finish the work. I need to help him out myself. And tomorrow, I'm going to help him out again. And when I mess up, I knew what I did wrong. Give me another chance. I'll do it again. That's the issue. When we think that somehow we can accomplish in the flesh what only the Spirit of God can do in our lives, you're no longer walking in the truths of grace. You're walking right back into the law again. So look at why Romans 8, 3 and 4 is so profound. Listen to what it says. For what the law could not do, it could not complete, it could not accomplish, it could not finish, Weak as it was in the flesh, the law points out our failures. It does not enable our obedience. That's a good word. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is to be a Spirit-filled life, a Spirit-led life, a Spirit-empowered life. The entire law of God can be summarized in two commands. Love God and love love your neighbors yourself, love people, yes. So when a person has been transformed by the gospel, set free from the bondage of sin, recreated in Christ Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and living in dependence upon the Spirit of God. They do not need external commands to force them to love God and love people. You know why? Because it is Christ living through us as us. The same one who fulfilled the law is the same one who is living out the commands of God through us. Failing to stand firm in freedom places us back under bondage and under the yoke of slavery. So what's another consequence of failing to stand firm? Here's the second one, and this is where we end tonight. Failing to stand firm in freedom forfeits our spiritual wealth, making us a debtor again. It forfeits our spiritual wealth, making us a debtor again. This is found in verses 2 and 3. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So let's pause here for just a moment. Circumcision was like the badge or the patch of the law. 
uh, badges indicate what groups you belong to. So uh, you could look at biker gangs and you'll see patches and you can identify what groups they're a part of. In the military, there's patches that identify what groups people are a part of. You got the same thing all the way down to Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, that it helps people identify the group you're with. So Paul is saying, when you put on the patch of the law, which is circumcision, it is indicating where your allegiance is to. You are declaring that your faith is in religious law, it is in personal effort, it is in works-based righteousness, and it is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you position yourself there, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now let's say for just a moment, you're wanting to lose some weight and you're trying to decide between a couple of different weight loss options. And one of the plans that you're looking at, it emphasizes smaller portion sizes that are low fat and low calorie. And then you're looking at another one that also promises great gains or great rewards, but it emphasizes larger portion sizes that are high protein and low carb. And both of them look like they got strong success rates. And you can't determine which one that you want to choose. And you think to yourself, well, if one plan is good, then two must be better. I'll do both at the same time. I'll lose twice as much weight if I just do both of these plans. So you start out on that, and you eat the breakfast recommended by one, and it's a moderate amount of oatmeal and some fresh fruit and a little bit of yogurt. And you're like, man, that was fantastic. And you get the meal from the other one. It's going to be this larger portion of bacon and eggs and black coffee that makes everybody smile. And so you're having this meal, and it's so wonderful that you're thinking to yourself, like, that was so good, I'll do it for the next meal, and I'll do it for the next one. I'll do it for the different snacks in between. And let's say you did that for an entire month how much weight do you think you're going to lose following both plans at the same time <laughs> none you're probably going to have to start over again okay take the idea back into this text trusting in the law to make us right with God while also trying to trust in Jesus to make us right with God is going to nullify what you're saying about trusting in Jesus. Because trusting in Jesus means you're placing faith in Christ alone, that he alone can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It is not Jesus plus works. It is not Jesus plus effort. It is not Jesus plus Buddha. It is not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. It's not Jesus plus reading your Bible every day. It is not Jesus plus taking a pilgrimage to Israel. It's just Jesus that's what it means. It's Christ, Christ always, and Christ alone. Trusting in both robs us of the spiritual wealth and makes us a debtor again to the law. So when the Apostle Paul spoke of the privileges that come with sonship back over in chapter 4, we saw some of those blessings of being an heir with Christ. And among those blessings was the idea that a son is rich because he has full access and immediate access to the father's wealth. Since we are adopted as sons uh, into the family of God, we are placed into the family and we can draw from our inheritance that is ours in Christ. And we cover just a little bit of what that inheritance is. As sons of God, we have access to the riches of grace, Ephesians 1. 
We have access to the riches of glory, Philippians 4. The riches of his goodness, Romans 2. The riches of his wisdom, Romans chapter 11. All of the riches of God are found in Christ, according to Colossians 1.19 and chapter 2, verse 3. If all of that is found in Christ, and we say, but I'm still going to try the law, you just basically said, I'm rejecting what Christ is going to offer. You lose the riches of what's found in him. Paul used two accounting phrases to describe those losses. Uh, Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's found in chapter 5, verse 2. If you are not a Christian, then the riches of Christ are not available to you. That makes sense. If you are a Christian and yet trying to rely upon the law, you are not drawing from the riches that are already yours in Christ. The second of those accounting terms is found over in chapter 5, verse 3. He teaches that the person who attempts to place themselves under one part of the law, they are under obligation to keep the whole law. Or another translation says it like this, they are a debtor to do the whole law. So imagine somebody is driving well above the speed limit. They drive straight through a red traffic light. And they get pulled over. And when the officer is asking for a driver's license, proof of insurance, they say, I'll give you that, but I think it's important for me to tell you I've not ever cheated on my taxes. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't knocked over the first liquor store at this point in my life. I've, I've been a good person. I've tried to pe uh, treat people with respect. I feel like because of me keeping those, you should not punish me for this. Okay, right after they get their ticket, here's what they will probably understand. Obedience to part of the law does not make up for disobedience to another part of the law. It's the same law. To sin is to break God's law. The same law that protects the obedient man is the same law that punishes the offender. It's bad enough that legalism robs a person of their liberty in Christ, but it also robs them of their wealth in Christ. We go from being spiritually free to being religiously bound. We go from being spiritually wealthy to being spiritually bankrupt. Unfortunately, all of it is happening by choice. So let's finish out with an illustration. I've said many times before, our actions flow out of our beliefs. What you believe about God, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about the word of God, what you believe about the future, your actions are going to flow out of what you believe. So imagine for a moment there's somebody who has fallen on hard times financially. The creditors are calling the house, bills are piling up, they don't know what they're going to do to make ends meet, and the worry and the stress and the anxiety is just overwhelming. Now imagine that same person discovers that there is an oil well on their property. And it's not only an oil well, it's deep, it's vast, it's big. And they discover that Right on their own property, there is an oil well with $500 million worth of oil that is down in the ground. And imagine somebody not only helps them discover it, but helps them tap into that. Understanding that one piece alone immediately 
would begin to remove any of the financial issues that they're facing as well as some of those concerns of worry and anxiety that come from that situation. Here's the reason I bring it up. Metaphorically, many Christians have fallen on spiritually hard times. They are battling things out day after day. They're constantly stressed out. They're constantly anxious. And in their mind, God is like a creditor of righteousness who keeps coming at them and saying, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. And they don't have anything to give. And while they feel that way, the reality is they're already millionaires in Christ. Everything they need for daily living, everything they need for a sound mind, everything they need for wise choices, everything they need for their souls to flourish has been given to them at the moment of salvation if they just knew what it was and they just knew how to tap into it. That's why these truths are so important. When believers know the position of where we are in Christ, and when believers understand the possessions that we have in Christ, all of a sudden it unlocks this freedom. It unlocks this opportunity for people to experience what is already theirs by virtue of that relationship. While driving in today, I've been praying now for a couple of months. While driving in today, I believe God has now given me what the second book is that we're going to be studying on Sunday night. And it's going to talk about our position and our possessions in Christ. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to encourage you to read your Bibles and find out what you think it is. In a couple months, we're going to get into that. But here's the thing. My heart, as you all have heard many times before, it is into discipleship. and It's about people living out of the overflow of their relationship with God. Not going through the motions but having such an incredible, intimate walk with God that every day they just stand in awe and in wonder of the fact that God loved them so much that he would send a son to die for them. That he loved them so much that he didn't just save them. He set them up for success, for flourishing, for life, for abundance if we only know what those things are in Christ. It's going to be a good time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the fact that we have so, so much to be grateful for. God, we ask that you would give us a heart and a passion, a desire, not only to know you deeply, but, God, for you to live your truths in and through us. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful night. God bless you. We'll see you this next week.